This week's episode of The Rebooting Show is brought to you by my friends at House of Kaizen. I know from experience how hard it is to build a subscription business. Yes, having content worth paying for is the most important thing, but there are also thousands of details to master. What does an optimal subscription business look like? How do you know if your efforts to build subscriber revenue are performing to their potential? Well, House of Kaizen's 20 years of growth optimization for subscription products experience has given them the unique ability to identify the common markers of the strongest subscription product businesses and share them with you as your partners. Their subscription growth diagnostic very quickly identifies where and how to tackle the low-hanging fruit or the more meaty efforts to achieve the next phase of your growth goals. House of Kaizen's uh, subscription product experiences span publishing, streaming, software, wellness, and retail. It runs the gamut of subscriber experiences and will provide you with the best practices, research, and testing methods to get you where you want to be, faster and with more confidence and efficiency. They'll work alongside your team to discover, ideate, and execute experiments for sustainable subscription revenue growth. To find out more, go to houseofkaizen.com. That's Kaizen K. A-I-Z-E-N.com. And if you want to contact them even more directly, send an email to matt at houseofkaizen.com and tell them that you came from the rebooting. Thank you, House of Kaizen. I mean, think about it. Mitch McConnell can just talk about this. He he doesn't have to talk about like defending a ruling that's if you believe the polls, seventy percent of the country disagrees with. I would rather talk about the process if I was on the other side of that. So your point is yeah. right. They didn't say, well, this is such a good outcome. And yeah. Samuel Alito's reasoning is good for the following eight reasons. Yeah. A lot of rushing to get on elevators. I found his reasoning compelling. I think most of the Republicans did too, but you're right that they didn't choose to focus on that. Give me the case that institutions are going to like come through this intact. Welcome to The Rebooting Show. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week, I'm joined by Steve Hayes. Steve, as I joke, is my third favorite Republican after my parents. Hi, Mom and Dad. And we're back now with our panel for their winners and losers of the week. Steve. So my winner is out. In a country founded on freedom of religion, it's not a good idea to ban a religion. It's a little more complex Even with asterisks? No. Republicans can't just cast aside their principles. It's been catastrophic, I would say, for the last week. When you listen to President Biden, they are, in effect, saying, yeah. And Steve is a co-founder and is the CEO of The Dispatch. If you don't know The Dispatch, it is the second most popular politics newsletter on Substack. Even though you hear about Glenn Greenwald nonstop and you hear about Matt Taibbi and various others, this is actually more popular. Two longtime Fox News contributors have quit. Steve Hayes and Jonah Goldberg. We both just left Fox News. Do you feel that Fox News contributed to the violence that erupted on January 6th? People like Sean Hannity gave people the impression that Trump had won an election he had lost, and it contributed to the environment on January 6th. No question about it. And it is a conservative uh, publication. Steve has written for various conservative um, outlets. Uh, One of his partners, Joe 
Jonah Goldberg uh, has been a, was at the National Review for a long time. And they started this publication and moved it over to Substack. And now they are leaving Substack. They have 30,000 paying subscribers. But Steve and I talk about why the Dispatch has outgrown Substack. And we also get into a little bit about how they can carve out a space in this very fraught era where they want to be sort of center right and everyone's getting pulled into the extremes uh and they want to stay a little bit towards the center but more towards the right and so that's difficult to pull off these days and their success kind of points to the fact that there might be a market really for this kind of news and analysis so i hope you enjoy the conversation and always want to hear your feedback my email is be Morrissey at gmail.com. Full circle, full circle. So I was joking before, before uh, the podcast uh, that Steve is, other than my parents, my favorite Republican to talk to. And he was saying he's not a Republican. I, I reacted violently. I'm not a Republican. I mean, I'm still <laughs> conservative, libertarian, you know. I don't okay. figure out how to describe myself, but yeah, these are these it doesn't, are doesn't involve Republican. That's for sure. These are fraught times, but let's start with the news because I think you are uh, the Dispatch. Uh, for those who do not know it, it is a conservative uh, publication, um, and it is a shining example of success on Substack. Where, to be fair, I I also published the rebooting, but you're leaving Substack. Yeah, we we are leaving Substack. Um, We've, you know, we had this have had this phenomenal relationship with with the Substack founders. Our first meeting with them, I mean, basically the, the relationship was born because I knew they were doing newsletters, and when we launched, we wanted to be pushed content first, so newsletters and podcasts, and the website was the the third most important part of what we were going to be offering. So I just called them kind of out of the blue and said. Hey, I know you guys are smart about newsletters. Can you help us get smart about newsletters? And started this conversation uh, with both Hamish, Hamish and, and Chris, Chris Best primarily, also Jay later. And and they were great. We just, you know, sort of shot the breeze, compared notes. And then a couple weeks later, after we had walked them through what we wanted to build as a company, they said, hey, would, would you guys be interested in sort of being our guinea pig on Substack? building a company. And, you know, we were in the process of just revving up to, to hire a CTO and looking at hiring developers. And we were committed to, to leading with pod, with, with podcasts and newsletters. So we said, yeah, that'd be great. And our first actual meeting with them, as I recall, was our three founders and their three founders. And they were the only employees at each of the two companies. Um, so we, it was great. We had this sort of handshake partnership they built us out, and I think the benefit for them was they could see what the pain points and needs were of uh, a, a group that wanted to, to really grow on Substack. And for us, it was uh, saving a bunch of money that we would have spent on on hiring and uh, and really building and growing and going sort of all in on, on newsletters. So it was okay. an incredibly beneficial partnership for a couple of years. Okay. But why then why leave? This sounds amazing. Yeah, it, and it has been amazing. Um, we, you know, we we started looking. Where are we now? We're in early May, year and a half ago almost. We decided that we were going to just look around, do our due diligence. We were growing pretty fast, um, a lot faster than we had expected to grow. And uh, you know, we had given them early in the process, sort of, hey, this is what we want to, this is what we want to do, this is how we want to build. These are the analytics we need. 
these are the other tools we think we need to grow. And to their great credit, they they built and, and really kept up. Um, yeah, I think there was, there's a certain point w- when they were seeing the success that they were having, building out by focusing on individual content creators, mm-hmm. they looked around and said, well, we need to do more of this. And, and there came a point, I think, when their growth, which was just, you know, monumental, and what they were doing to get that growth didn't work for us as much as it had in the past. So we we wanted to to sort of accelerate our, you know, our presence in search. Uh, we wanted sort of finer analytics than they were able to provide at the time. Um, I think their analytics are pretty good. They've really ramped that up in, in the past couple of years. Um, and I have no doubt that as they continue that build out, it's going to sort of be best in class when they've got it all figured out. But we want to do some specific things with respect to to how we're looking at our audience and how we're looking at growing our audience. We had also built out sort of a separate marketing function um, on MailChimp and other places where we do our marketing and growth sends that way and, and kind of keep mm-hmm. the editorial on, on Substack. And we thought it would be easier to consolidate, consolidate that work as okay, well. Okay. So, so you're going to, you're going to be basically building out like a normal stack, like a WordPress site, correct. MailChimp, et cetera. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's not Mailchimp, uh, but but yeah, okay. but basically. But like you're going to use like a regular ESP. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, and it wasn't purely financially driven. It sounds like you're saying. I no. mean, because because the fees are you. I mean, to your credit, we'll we'll, we'll get to because you, know, you you're so admirably transparent. That's why you're my um, third favorite. <laughs> this is what you do to get people <laughs> um, divulge. Mom, mom and dad, and then Steve. That's those my Republican <laughs> rankings. Um, so you're going to be completely transparent about of how course, many subscribers you have because you have such a successful business and it's very <laughs> admirable. Um, but those fees are very high. But it's not just the fees. No, I mean, like, look, if if we go back to that, the date of that handshake partnership, we are, we believe we are way way ahead, despite paying their fees, um, and they didn't discount it for us. Um, we paid the we pay the full the full fee the whole time. No, I mean we didn't we didn't have to to do this. And they they built us, I think, a fantastic system that allowed us to to have sort of a core set of newsletters. The website we sort of used as community and a place to to keep everything together. We have all these, you know, 10 newsletters now that we send out on a regular basis and could monetize by doing, I mean, you know how, how easy yeah. Substack is. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. And that's, that was just a huge advantage for us, particularly because I was, you know, we had sort of a really smart part-time COO, but I was doing a lot of the business side stuff and I don't know what I'm doing. So it was really helpful to them, have them build us out. Yeah. So you're in, what, is it three years in with the dispatch now? We launched in October of uh, 2019. So not quite, not we're about quite. two and a half. Yeah. Okay, so now with the transparency, like, so <laughs> first of all, like, actually, no, let, let's go, like, what you, what was the idea that, that caused you to launch? I mean, we've discussed this before, but for those who didn't hear my first podcast with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the ba- we were trying to basically solve for, for the trust problem, as so many people are in, in journalism. And in, in our world, we saw that there was this huge gap on the center right for a, a publication that didn't sort of give, try to give the audience everything it thought the audience needed. It didn't do the kind of outrage bait stuff to, to, to get clicks to, to monetize eyeballs. We never wanted to do that. 
Mm-hmm. We wanted to to be be fact based, be serious, to combine kind of the old school rule, rules of how to do journalism with just a different approach to the world than than I believe most journalists have. I think most journalists come from the center left, and we thought we could provide value by by bringing to a lot of the same questions that you have when you cover politics, policy, and culture, but from the center right. Um, so that's that's what we've tried to do, and and it you know it's very reporting heavy. We've got some of the best uh, commentary and analysis writers in the country, in my view. And if you read what they do, it's also very fact heavy. I mean, certainly they have opinions, they, mm-hmm. they share them, they're not shy about it. But we try to be respectful of the people that we're disagreeing with. Um, and we, you know, read a Jonah Goldberg column. I've known the guy for 25 years. I talk to him five times a day. And I learned something in every one of the things that he writes because yeah. he's that good. So that's that's what we were trying to do. That's the gap we were trying to fill. Yeah. And um, explain why podcasts and like newsletters, because like I, I've been trying to like make this like I I see the I see a connective tissue between the two of them. Um, but you've written for magazines, you, you're on TV and everything yeah. like this. Explain the dynamics that, that make podcasts and newsletters different than other forms of media. Or maybe they yeah. they don't. I mean, I, I think they are. And I think it's not like I, you look at the success that, that Substack has had. And I think it's not an accident. I mean, do I do buy the argument that you hear from people who are sort of proselytizers for podcasts and newsletters that it is a more intimate form of communication. It's a more intimate. They're, they're more intimate media. And I think people like that. You know, when we talk to our newsletter writers, we tell them. Don't, you don't even think about writing like an, an AP style or, you know, like a New York Times article. Write it like you're writing a newsletter. You know, we, we have all these different ways of, of, of thinking about it. I tell, some, tell, tell people to, to think that they're just getting back in touch with a, a friend from college who has been in the Peace Corps for two years and isn't really following the day to day, but is really smart and wants to keep up with things. So write like you're writing them a, an email. Provide a lot of contextual information, provide a lot of background and write it in a, you know, a less formal and I would say stilted way than you'd get in the New York Times. Um, So we've we've done that kind of from the beginning. And certainly if you look at the way people respond to the newsletters and the way that our community engages, that's how they see us. Right. They see us as their friends who are sending them emails. And we, we think there's huge power in building a community around that. Um, again, not, not a novel idea to, to the dispatch, but, um, that really seems to be working. Yeah. It's, it's just like having written for magazines and for sites and stuff like this, the, the level of feedback that you get, I feel like, at least for me personally with newsletters is just, it's qualitatively and quantitatively different. Um, and for whatever reason, there is that personal connection and it leads to, at least a higher engagement media. Like I think a lot of Agreed. media these days is just, it's low engagement, you know? And I think, and I do think that that is part of the outrage because like, it's an easy, it's a growth hack to engagement. Yeah. Well, look, <laughs> if, if you, if, if all you care about is monetizing the click by definition, low engagement is more efficient, right? I mean, that's yeah. what actually what you want. If it's just the click, that's what you want. I think most people have gotten smart about it and decided that that's not what they want. But this, this is a way to, to, to start with engagement, start with community, and then provide that kind of, you know, we think of it as really straightforward reporting, straightforward information, the kind of, I mean, I don't 
don't know exactly how to describe it, but like, you know, I mean, the New York Times spends a lot of time congratulating itself as as producing all the news that's fit to print. Um, you know, claims to be this sort of objective outlet. I don't think the New York Times is an objective outlet. I think they have some of the very best reporters in the world working for the New York Times. Um, people I admire and people who I, I would love to be in a different life. But they're mixed on the front page of the New York Times with people who are more ideological than I am. And I'm running an ideological company. Um, so I think people, you know, our, our audience certainly reads the New York Times with this kind of deep skepticism about where it's coming from. And we tell people where we're coming from. Hey, this is where we're coming from. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that we're pounding people over the head with ideology. And we said, you know, we, we did this launch manifesto back on the first day we, we posted anything. And one of the things we really emphasized was we want to challenge your assumptions. So if you think you're coming here to have your views validated or because you want to nod along and get angry about the stuff that you're reading, don't come here. Like we're not for you because that's not what we're doing. We want to challenge your assumptions. We challenge our own assumptions all the time. And we're going to report this stuff out. And if it comes out that through our, our reporting, we come to a conclusion that's different than what we thought we believed at the beginning of the piece. Well, great. That's better for us. It's better for you. It's better for everybody. So ex give me an example of that, because, I mean, you're in, in the politics world and, and particularly um, on the right side of the spectrum, you know, you launched at a time when obviously Trump was was sucking all the oxygen out of the room. He still is. Um, and uh, wait till he gets back on Twitter. Uh, you, but you didn't want to define yourself as being anti-Trump, but you're not right. Trumpy. Explain right. that sort of like balance. Sure. I mean, we when we we went out and and did um, a week and a half of of uh, investor pitches back in April of 2019, and you know we had the whole deck and. We were, su we were such novices, neither Jonah nor I knew how to put together a PowerPoint. So we had to sort of outsource the PowerPoint, uh, which is really bad. Th that makes me feel so much better because like I've done consulting stuff and, uh, now and I am like, I don't know anything about it's PowerPoint. It's so bad. We're just writers. Well, the writers. problem was, you know, it, yeah, if there was like a little thing that we wanted to change on one of the slides, neither one of us knew how to do it. So the person who was sort of advising us and put together the PowerPoint had complete control of what we did. Because we didn't know how to change it. Anyway, when we went to, to make these pitches, we would sit across from investors and, and we would never mention Trump's name. So it didn't come out of our mouth, you know, 15, 20 minute pitch. Yeah. Um, and the, usually the first question we got was about Trump. Wow, you guys are, are anti-Trump or Trump skeptical and how is this going to work? And isn't it the case that most Republicans are Trump fans and they want to read pro-Trump stuff? And I guess our view from the beginning was that that's just not the business we wanted to. Um, Jonah had come from 20 plus years at National Review. He was a syndicated columnist, built a, you know, a, a very good reputation, being sort of thoughtful and intellectually honest. I had come from a couple of years running the Weekly Standard, which was shut down by our previous owner, who's a, a billionaire in, in Colorado, in part because of uh, conflicting visions about how to do journalism, but also in part because the company became more Trumpy and the people who were running the company became more Trumpy and we didn't. So in our view, it would never have been possible to kind of play to the crowd because it's not what we believed. It, it yeah. was never going to work that way. We were never going to do that to, to get clicks. And we didn't really fundamentally care about clicks. Yeah. 
So I, it's, it's kind of interesting because like, I think sometimes I talk with people who are like operator founders, but then also like, um, you know, people who come from the journalism and the content side, um, and they just make different products. Like, because if you were looking just for like the total addressable market, I think like non-Trump center right is just not the area <laughs> that would be the biggest addressable market at the time. I mean, yes and no. I mean, that's a really interesting question. And as you can imagine, we spent a fair amount of time thinking about it. I think there is a, if you look at the, the way our politics are playing out today, I think there's a core on the sort of righty, Trumpy fringe that is all politics all the time. They can't get enough of politics. It consumes them. And, you know, they drive a lot of the decision making. They drive a lot of the media consumption on the right. Uh, they they drive a lot of the, the political debate on the right. They're the most active in, in political primaries. But they really don't speak for most people on the center right. I think most yeah. people on the center right are sort of sane and go and, you know, live their lives and go to their kids' soccer games and have a job. And they can't jump from Breitbart to Fox News to The Federalist to the, like in a constant circle to get their sort of fix uh, of, of what's going to anger them. We appeal to those people and we borrowed I will say, you know, we borrowed um, a little bit from from Vox, uh, Vox.com on this. And and um, I remember listening to uh, there was a, a five year anniversary podcast that Ezra Klein and um, some of the other co-founders did. And they were talking about what they who, who their audience is. And they Matt Iglesias talked about a doctor friend. I think she was in Seattle. She's an ER doc who, you know, had three kids and was running around like crazy. But in his telling, she was one of the smartest people he knew. And he thought, we're going to do our explainers. We're going to do our reporting. We're going to do our journalism for somebody like that. So you're never condescending to your audience, but you can explain what's going on because they're not sort of manic and freaky about it. That's who we think we're appealing to is that slice on the center right. And it goes over a I think a, a, a fair amount if you look at it as a on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And we also have a, a good number of readers and members who are on the center left. And and you know, we we take pride in that fact. We think yeah. that's a good thing. Are you trying to bring them over? Honestly, we're we're mostly trying to give them a good <laughs> no, stuff. You know, I don't I, I it's weird. I care more about I mean, this sounds um, sort of hopelessly um, naive, but I care more about fostering a, a, a good community and having sort of actual honest exchanges back and forth between our members than yeah. I do about converting anybody at this point. Yeah. I, mean, I'm no, not I, mostly, I was mostly joking because, I mean, we had talked before about like, you know, politics used to be between the 40s, you know, center left, right. center right, because, you know, I'm reading this this really fascinating book about the the rise and fall of, of neoliberalism. And, um, and really, I think it makes like a very basic point of like, we move from, you know, the new deal and like Eisenhower co-opted the new deal. Basically he, the Republicans capitulated to the new deal. They couldn't, they couldn't defeat it with Hoover and stuff like this. And really the same thing happened with the, the real liberal, like the true liberal, like Reagan yeah. Thatcher, and that it was consolidated by Blair and Clinton, like it was just a different flavor it was of of neoliberalism and uh i have no idea what we're moving into now but i think a lot of the the focus goes on on the extremes um yeah. but that the the middle is still there 
Yeah, and we we hear this all the time, and uh, you know, of course, a lot of this is anecdotal, but you know, the number of conversations I've had where people have said, I mean, I had one this this weekend where somebody says, "I'm just so glad you guys exist." I didn't know, you know, you got to the point where when you're consuming information, you know, on the center right, you begin to think that the people who are, you know, obsessed with Hannity or parent Hannity's talking points, that those are who conservatives are. And that's not the case. It just isn't the case. I mean, Hannity gets on a good night, 3 million people who watch his show on Fox, 330 million people in the country, um, 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. I think a lot of them did it with, with their noses held yeah. last time. Um, and there are a lot of people who didn't vote because they didn't want to do it. We think we can appeal to, to those folks and, and beyond. Okay, so I promised that we were going to get into the numbers. So, like, how many paying subscribers do you have? Um, so we're we're doing our best not to give precise numbers anymore, but I can say we're north of thirty thousand paying members at this point. Okay, so the business model. So, I mean, we talked about the audience model. It's a the, there's a lot of people on the center right, and also you know the the center left would be open to it. I don't think many yeah. people on the the far right or the far left are going to find much that they like at the dispatch. I Probably could be right. wrong. No they problem. could hate read it. They could hate read it. If you look, if you're just looking for clicks, they could hate read, but I don't know if they're going to pay you. Um, but explain the model and why you thought it was important. Because I always talk about like matching the editor, the business model to the editorial mission. Explain why a business model that is not exclusively subscriptions, and we'll talk about that, but that subscriptions is the core. Why was that important? Yeah, I mean, in part, it was strategic. This was something that we we wanted to do. We wanted to build this foundation of reader revenue to to really get a sense of whether we could make the thing go, right? Whether it was actually going to be sustainable. Um, you know, we had set uh, member targets uh, that turned out to be kind of laughably low. Our, our I think our, um, you know, sort of rosiest scenario at the end of 2020 was like 4,200 members and we were 17,000 or something crazy. Um, this is what happens when journalists do the like, you know, yeah, business plan. Yeah, we had no plan. idea. It's I mean, we had some... Only journalists do a business plan that they did that they totally overshoot. We had, <laughs> we had, we had some really smart people helping us out. But, um, but if, you know, if one of the key launch questions was, is there an audience for the thing? Yeah. Um, you know, we feel like we've got a pretty resounding answer that, yeah, there's an audience for it. It's way, way bigger than you thought. Um, but we wanted the the stability that reader revenue gave us as sort of the foundation for the business. Um, that said, our if, if you go back and look at our year one projections, our top revenue line uh, in our projections was events. That didn't happen for reasons that we're all too familiar with. We're, we're going to be ramping up some events here uh, soon, we think. And we hope to to add that back as a, as a new revenue stream, uh, although we're going to be very careful about the kinds of events that we do. So we thought that re reader revenue was really going to be the, the, the sort of core to the, the business, and then we would grow from there. It also, you know, when we struck this sort of handshake agreement with Substack, they didn't want us to do ads and sponsorships. So when we talked to them, they, they, were, they made a very persuasive argument. We had originally thought that we would do what we called tasteful sponsorships that would be, in effect, billboard-style things in, in the newsletters, no ad mm -hmm. tech built in, none of that. Just sort of like, you want to be here, be seen here. We're not counting. We can tell you how many we're sending to. We're not building in ad tech and, and focus on reader revenue. Um, Substack didn't want us to do that. Uh, they made a case to us that, that we could, if we really focused on subscribers members 
that we could succeed doing that. And um, they were very persuasive in the case. And it turns out they were exactly right. They were 100% right about that. So that's what we did. Um, you know, now that we're moving off of Substack, I think we're, we're looking to explore a return possibly to these tasteful sponsorships. It's very, very important to us not to ruin the user experience. I mean, yeah. I know you hear this from everybody, but it, it, we, we mean it. Um, we're never going to do pop-ups. We're never going to do autoplays. We get so <laughs> much good feedback about the simple user experience that people have gotten used to on, on Substack that we're going to do everything we can to replicate that while experimenting uh, with, with ads and sponsorships in a limited way. Well, I think what's interesting, like I had, um, I talked with Jake um, Sherman from Punchbowl uh, on this. Is I listened, like, yeah. Even, even publications, and they're usually newsletters that um, that have subscriptions at their core, end up having thriving um, advertising businesses. Sure. Because like, and again, it's this personal engagement media. I just feel like, you know, the the you have much more engaged audiences. And if you can prove that by saying that, like, you know, tens of thousands of people are paying us for this, it, it becomes even more valuable. And I think what, one of the things that's that um, is sort of underappreciated is that it's also been normalized now with advertisers, this style of advertising that is not so disruptive and is not autoplay video with sound off. Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. We think we can... We think we can experiment with that. We're going to be really careful and cautious. And look, I mean, I, I, I am pretty naive about this. I, 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 if I'm, I'm helping to run the, the business side right now, we brought in a very smart um, VP of marketing from The Athletic, who's, who's great. But, you know, we're out hiring for a president right now. We're, we're, going, we're looking to build up our, our business side because if, if I'm running the business side <laughs> in two years, the thing's not likely to succeed long term. Um, but have, having said that, I mean, we're well aware how much revenue we're leaving on the table. I mean, yeah. we get it. We know it's entirely a, 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 a purposeful decision. We're doing that on purpose. We want to sort of see what we can do that's consistent with the way that we were founded, with the values that we were founded with, and with what our yeah. members have become accustomed to. So you do sponsorships for the podcast, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just typical ads that Stitcher does. Oh, okay. So right now, subscriptions are what, like 90% of the revenue? Or Yeah, ballpark, yeah. And then events will, will come on. I mean, like, the and will these be in the typical sort of like Washington style of events? No. I mean, no? I would say no. It's interesting. I, I, I listened to your, I've listened to, you know, I listened to all your podcasts. Oh. Uh, the the, the Punchbowl one stood out for me. Um, I listened to the podcast that you did with the, He's the COO of Grid, or yeah, and fascinating to me because you know we launched in many ways opposite what what those folks are doing, right? So they're playing to the inside Washington crowd, and as as often as not, I mean, they're that's their customer base. We are we're doing sort of inside out. We're writing for people outside. Um, we want people in my mom's church group to be reading us and to feel like when they look at Washington and they're confused about what's happening in Washington and it all seems like chaos and it doesn't make any sense, that we can say to them, here's what's going on. But not by using the insider language that Punchbowl has mastered, that uh, okay. Politico does, that Axios does. Like you're yeah. never going to go for the deputy ag uh, okay. secretary. Like it's never going to happen. 
You're not going to do we, like mansion in all caps. Thankfully. Never, no. never. <laughs> and we're going to, you. you know, we, we do the, we, we spell out the acronyms. We don't assume that people know what we're talking about when we mention SISA or when we mention DHS. I mean, yeah, maybe some people do, but what we found interestingly, I mean, because of course we could see in the back end, we still have all those readers, right? I mean, we have a very robust Washington readership yeah. across the government, on Capitol Hill, in, in the executive branch, um, and elsewhere. Uh, we don't think it's affected us, but it certainly has affected how we approach things from a revenue perspective. Doing an interview with somebody who was a, uh, you know, we we're talking to about um, becoming a, our president, and this person basically made the case that our audience is the four or 500 people who have access to, you know, 500,000 or a million dollar lobbying spends every month. And if we can get them to spend their money with us, you know, we'd see our revenues go through the roof and we'd have a very successful business. And I don't, I don't think he's necessarily wrong in terms of his assessment, mm-hmm. but it's not the business we want to be in. That's not what we want to do. So we'll do some events, we'll do some Washington events, but we don't ever want to do the kinds of events that, uh, to quote my co-founder Jonah, would make us feel, um, okay. where it's just pure access play. I, I don't, we don't want to do that. It's not the business we're in. The, the main thing we're trying to solve continues to be trust. And if we start doing stuff like that, that causes the rest of our members to look at us and say, hmm, that's it. How can they cover this fairly? Because they're taking a bunch of money to do an event with these people, then I think we have a problem with, with sort of the, the main part of what we want to do. Yeah. So let's talk about the trust thing, um, because I think this is a, it's a massive issue across, you know, all of society, right? But um, I want to zero in particularly um, on the right side of the spectrum. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we hear a lot about it, like on a macro level, but it's very acute on, on the right side. You know, um, where do you, you assign some blame, but not all blame to the quote unquote, the media. I know whatever anyone talks about the media, I'm just like, oh God, but yeah, but I think that, I mean, if we want to actually understand the problem, and I think this is a huge, I think it's, you know, one of the the biggest issues in the country right now is we don't have shared facts. We don't trust each other. There's, there's, People are skeptical of authoritative voices of information, particularly, as you say, on the right. And I think there is a reason for it. I mean, look, there's a reason that Fox News was successful, right? I mean, I worked there for for a dozen years. If you look back at the founding of Fox in its early years, I think Fox was filling a a very much um, needed niche or or a a big niche. The problem, in our view, or in my view, is that... Now you have too many people on, the, on the, the right who are willing to believe anything. And they say, you know, it's because it comes from the New York Times or NBC News. Therefore, it must be false or untrue. And they look at these mainstream media outlets as if they are arms of the Democratic Party. And look, I mean, I've, I've worked with people like this. I went to journalism school with people like this. I don't think that's what's happening. I think they come with a different worldview than I have. Oftentimes, I mean, the debates that I would have over beers and wings late at night in, in grad school, yeah. invariably it was me against eight other people 
And most of them went on to work at ABC News, the New York Times or places like that. Great people, but they, they came with different assumptions. So what we think we can do is, is in, in helping to rebuild this trust, we're not saying this is a scalable global solution. We're trying to do a little part on our little company. Mm -hmm. It's just to say like, hey, here's where we're coming from. And here's how we do the process. Like, look behind the scenes. You can trust us. And if we get something wrong, we're going to shout it at you and tell you we really screwed this up. So you can trust us the next time. Yeah. But it seems like very core to this is you push beyond the like, oh, we don't have biases. You're like, oh, no, we're biased. Like we yeah. have a belief generally aligned with conservative principles and Correct. we're center right. And this is like our worldview. I think what's interesting about that is that I think it's easier to do with people, with individuals at the forefront than with a an institutional brand. That's why we like hmm. laugh when we talk about the media because it's right. like, what is this? It's a collection of people. It's like, but like there's truth to it. But at the same time, um, I feel like um, you can be more transparent when it's about like individuals. Do you think that has any validity? Yeah, I mean, I I think, I mean, it's, yeah, you know, to, to put it in the framework of your institutions versus individuals, um, sort of ongoing conversation that you've been having, I do think that helps us, right? So people, when we launched, Jonah Goldberg was a co-founder. He'd been writing the G-File, which is a sort of column newsletter for 20 years. He had a massive audience. People had come to trust him. They came to trust his judgment. They like his writing. They, they value his analysis and... We built the company on that trust, for sure. No question about it. David French, who's another one of our writers, the same, the same dynamic. So we have been able to use the, the trust that has been earned over all these years right. by people like Jonah and David and build a company around it. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm very purposeful when I say earned, right? And I think part of the reason that, that we've been able to earn that trust is because in the context of the Trump era, to go back to your question earlier, like, uh, I hope you don't need a lot of convincing on this. It would have been a lot easier. It would have been a lot better for our careers had we just gone along, right? I mean, undoubtedly could have made a lot more money if we didn't stop and, and say, like, wait a second, this Trump guy's lying all the time. Like, that's not good for us. That's not what I believe. I can't be part of that. There is no question it would have been better, sort of more financially lucrative to have done that. But we didn't do it because we care about the stuff and we care about the truth and we care about, you know, sort of this kind of a, a, a discussion. And I think that's helped earn us trust, honestly. Yeah. I just like while you were talking, I, I just Googled Tucker Carlson net worth. Forbes has it as 420 million. I mean, mine's right around there. <laughs> I always say, like, you know, you've hit it when one of your your top like Google auto complete search for your name is like net worth. Net worth, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, we did not. We did not. But do like, that. I mean, like, it is actually a, a real example because I mean, uh, I mean, people forget, but Tucker Carlson started writing for the Weekly Standard, where you were editor. He did, yeah, yeah. He was, in fact, when he left the Weekly Standard, this is back in the late. 1990s, early, early, early aughts, yeah. he left and created the opening that I eventually filled um, as a staff writer there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely it's it's lucrative that on that end. And I think a lot of people end up 
you know, wondering whether people, I'll, I'll say people on the left, right, end up wondering whether they're like, do these people, you know, do, like Tucker Cross, does he really believe this stuff? Yeah, people like, on the right wonder that too. Okay. <laughs> did they, did they? People, people who know him very well wonder that too. No, I mean, I think some of them do, some of them don't. <clears throat> a lot of people will say, I mean, you know, certainly in my experience, so I was at Fox until November and, and then um, we left in part because of this yeah. documentary that Tucker Carlson um, produced that was about January 6th and was bad propaganda and I think dangerous. So I th- I think what happens is a lot of people take shortcuts that they probably know they they shouldn't take. So they they'll say something to be quote unquote on the team. And they don't really mean it. I mean there there are times that people said to me after a uh, you know a discussion, I can't believe I have to defend this guy. And you'd say, well, you don't have to defend this guy. Like if you don't agree with them or you don't believe what he's doing, don't defend him. Like actually criticize. It was that was not uncommon. I think, you know, you start to say this stuff and again and again, and you come to believe it. And I think that's where a lot of the people in the, on the center right are on, on a lot of these issues. Um, so where, where do we actually, like you have an optimist, I think you have an optimistic view that our politics will become somewhat more normal or no. I go back and forth. You sort of have to have an optimistic view that eventually things will right themselves or you'd be crazy to be in the business I'm in, right? Yeah. Um, so I hope- I- give, me, give me the optimistic scenario. The optimistic, I mean, so the optimistic scenario is for six or seven years, I've been talking to Republican elected officials off the record who say, this is terrible. I can't do this another day. This is awful. We need to find a way back to a place where we can, you know, have conversations with Democrats where we can disagree in an agreeable way. Um, and they don't say it in public, which is, you know, very frustrating and hard as a journalist. It's hard to convey that to your audience, right? Because if these are off the record conversations, all I can say is they're saying something different in private and they're, than they're saying in yeah. public. And boy, well, we, keep that's, that's we, keep, we keep hearing that. We keep hearing this. Yeah, and, and there are if I can speak for the general public. <laughs> yeah, there there are books. I mean, I can tell you it's it's true. There are books filled with that. I do think this this new book from Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, these New York Times writers, uh, have this book out. I think this week called "This This Will Not Pass," yeah. and it's filled of this stuff, and it's on the record. So I read the book, and I'm thinking, you know, hallelujah, this is this is giving additional sort of support to the the case I've been making for a long time. So so I. Think the fact that they still recognize mm-hmm. that this isn't cool means that they're hopeful that they can eventually play some role in getting us back yeah. to something that's that's more normal. I take the criticism. I I get the criticism. I can hear it right now. Yeah, that you're crazy to still believe this. You're totally naive. That may be the case, and the, that's the the downside. Yeah. The other thing I'll just say, just as an addendum, I mean, you know, it's not nothing that that. We've got the numbers that we've got, and they're small. You know, we're not the New York Times. They're small on a relative basis, but we've got a couple hundred thousand people on our our free list. We've got north of thirty thousand people who want to pay us to do this stuff, and we're growing. Uh, we're still growing, yeah. so I do take some optimism that that there's sort of that quiet, normal group in the in the center that is mm-hmm. is willing to to try to get back to that. So final thing is, I mean, you're a conservative, so you believe in institutions, right? I believe that's a key part of conservatism, right? Um, Institutions have gone through a a rough time uh, across the board in society, but like particularly all of our governing institutions are held in 
in low regard, we we've now seen the the Supreme Court is is going to be overturning Roe versus Wade. People on the right are obsessing uh, with the leak, which I believe came from a conservative anyway. Uh, I just mm-hmm. it's, it normalizes it; it gets it out there. It's going to be less of a thunderbolt when the the ruling eventually comes down. I don't think it benefits any sort of progressive person, but whatever. That's the game we play. Um, but then you know, there's the question of the politicization of the, the Supreme Court. We had the storming of the Capitol, um, so. You have to be concerned for our institutions, right? Or is deeply. this okay? This is not like catastrophic. No, no, not at all. Okay. I mean, I'm deeply. You can just get the, look at the numbers. I mean, look at the numbers from from Gallup and and Pew over the years. The the um, deteriorating faith in our institutions, and I would include the media in, in that. Um, yeah, look, I, I have a different view of the the Supreme Court case probably than than you do. I do think the the leak came from probably somebody on the uh, left, a clerk from from one of the left leaning uh, justices. But again, to 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 my point about the dispatch, David French and Sarah Isker, uh, we did a, a live stream last night, made the opposite argument. Said, ah, you know, I think it's there's a pretty good case that this came from from the conservative. I mean, side. think about yeah. it. It, it. Mitch McConnell yeah. can just talk oh, about I mean, this. He he doesn't have to talk about like defending a ruling that's if he believed the polls, seventy percent of the country disagrees with. I would rather talk about the process if I was on the other side of that. I think, uh, yeah, I think the 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 seventy percent number. Which comes from a CNN poll, I think that's that's problematic. I think the the views are more nuanced of the American public on that. But I mean, look, when when Republican office holders yesterday were asked about this, they didn't they focused on the leak. So your point is yeah. right. They didn't say, well, this is such a good outcome, and yeah. Samuel Alito's reasoning is good for the following eight reasons. Yeah. A lot of rushing to get on elevators. I found his reasoning compelling. I think most of the Republicans did too, but you're right that they didn't choose to focus on that. Okay. Put a bow on this. Give me the case that institutions are going to like come through this intact. Yeah, there's a case. I mean, we've had Jack Goldsmith from from Harvard and others make in our pages that institutions as battered and bruised as they've been over the past seven, eight years actually performed their guardrail functions, even if the public has left. Like, ultimately, we're still having elections were still all of the basics are still there and while you know you'd like to hope that we could do better than that by i think the fact that people are as concerned about the institutions as they are um gives us room to be optimistic that despite all of these differences and despite all of the crazy that we know that that those have to be preserved but you asked me to give you the optimistic case so that's what i gave you i'm worried I mean, I'm really worried. I'm worried about the. I'm worried about the 2022 elections. You have, uh, particularly in in Republican areas, you have uh, red state folks pushing secretaries of state who are making an explicit case that the 2020 election was stolen, and that they will not allow that to happen again in 2022. Well, the 2020 election wasn't stolen, so. So it makes you nervous about what kinds of people we'll be having running our elections uh, next time in 22 and in 24. Okay. We're not going to end on an optimistic note. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) But it's a realistic note. I didn't want to sell false optimism. I mean, (laughs) there is some optimism there, but I'm worried. Okay. Well, um, good luck on the post sub stack. Um, 
era um definitely come back and and update me on on the progress um thank you yeah I, I think from an optimistic standpoint i think it's great that new publications have been uh, born in this time and you know not all of them are going to make it we didn't get to talk about ben and justin's uh um new publication that they're going to be coming out with but um i think it's like kind of an exciting time that people are trying different models and um and we're gonna get there's a lot to learn i mean by looking around there's a lot to learn from what everybody else is doing yeah. um yeah. succeeding and failing so it's it's good cool great thank you so much steve thank you thank you for listening this week we will be back next week with a new episode the rebooting show is produced by pod help us podcasts are a great way to expand your client base Pod Help Us lets you focus on having engaging conversations, giving your brand the full stack of services needed for a professional look and sound. Start your podcast today at podhelp.us.